This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello out there in Michigan Radio Land. At this point, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer has given her budget message, uh, eagerly anticipated by everybody. Uh, been a lot of commentary this week about it. I'm not going to go into that in depth today because we've got weeks and months to talk about this. We've got a special guest uh, today starting off the program. He is Chris Kristoff. He was the bureau chief for the Detroit Free Press for years. In fact, tell me, Chris Kristoff, how many years? Uh, well, I was 25 years with the Free Press in Lansing, and then uh, my last four years uh, I spent with the Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg News out of New York, and I was there, Lansing and Michigan correspondent for state and local government. So uh, I guess that's uh, all of that. It's almost 30 years, Bill. You've seen it all. I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable, uh, 30 years. Um, let me ask you, uh, when you were the bureau chief for the Detroit Free Press, um, and we're going back 30 years, I mean, what, you started like in 1988, 89? 1987, Atlanta. 87, okay. Revenue and all that stuff is, if you look back over the years, in fact, even before you got to the free press in Lansing, and I think you started out, didn't you, at the Flint Journal at one point, right? Yes, that's right. And that was probably in the early 80s, maybe? In the early 80s, right. Yeah. Well, remember when Jim Blanchard was elected governor in 1982, he came into a huge fiscal crisis, and the first thing he did was uh, call for an increase in the state income tax. The legislature obliged on a very partisan vote. And that, you know, kind of uh, set the tone for what happened uh, going forward. I mean, uh, all during the 80s, uh, obviously the national economy recovered, uh, Michigan's economy recovered, and things were looking pretty good. And then in 1990, uh, there was another little sag or blip or whatever, and uh, John Engler won in an upset over Jim Blanchard, came in as governor. And remember right off the bat in 91, 92, uh, there, there was somewhat of a fiscal crisis. And John Engler, uh, of course, he's a Republican, so he didn't look for new revenue. <laughs> he said, let's cut. And... Uh, what, 85,000 people were laid off general assistance welfare? Remember that? Sure, yeah, yeah single people, yeah. And uh, there were tent cities on the Capitol lawn. Right. And it was uh, really a pretty bad time, and John Engler's uh, approval ratings were in the tank. But then again, uh, just as 10 years earlier, the economy recovered, uh, all during the 90s, uh, under Bill Clinton as president, John Engler was governor. The economy improved, and John Engler was reelected in 1994 and in 1998. But then, guess what? At the end of his tenure, uh, just like uh, Bill Milliken uh, 20 years before, 
there was another recession. A lot of people forget there was the so-called tech bubble recession uh, of around 2000, 2001, 2002. It was terrible uh, economically. The unemployment rate skyrocketed in Michigan. Uh, There were, you know, projected deficits if something wasn't done and all sorts of uh, verbal, excuse me, uh, fiscal gymnastics were done to try and balance the budget. So in comes Gretchen, excuse me, Jennifer Granholm in 2003, and she faced the same kind of challenge that John Engler had faced uh, a dozen years before and that 20 years before Jim Blanchard had faced. And um, she struggled through her entire tenure, eight years. The economy never really got firing on all cylinders here in Michigan. It came back nationally, but it wasn't that great. And then, uh, of course, we came to 2008, 2009. There was another huge recession. This was a really big one. The worst since the 1930s. So by the time Rick Snyder came in, in 2011, the same situation confronted him as had confronted Jennifer Granholm uh, eight years before, as had confronted, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, John Engler. And uh, 30 years before, uh, you know, Jim Blanchard. Uh, So... How do you look at all this? Because right now, the economy in Michigan, supposedly and nationally, is in much better shape than it was uh, for uh, Jennifer Granholm or Jim Blanchard or John Engler. And yet, people are saying, you know what? There are so many pent-up needs in the state budget uh, that have been glossed over or papered over for years that we somehow got to raise revenue. Uh, we've got to increase spending. The governor was leading up to her budget message uh, with talks to the media in Detroit, like we've got to stop using uh, revenue as a dirty word. We've got to talk about investment. We got to talk about, you know, fix the damn roads, improving our infrastructure, improving our schools. How do you look at that entire sweep of a recent Michigan history, including much of that time when you were bureau chief? I've been saying for for years, Bill, that that governors and to some degree presidents, but governors get too much credit when times are good and too much blame when times are are bad. And I've heard heard so many economists and auto industry analysts over the years in their analysis, and they always said that just Despite all the talk about diversifying in Michigan, I mean, the state's economy really was, is, was and still is, is a good degree tied to the auto industry. I mean, the 90s saw, you know, Engler enjoyed, you know, the, the longest, lo- longest lasting boom in the American economy, uh, in one of the longest in the history. And remember, it wasn't just because auto companies were selling cars, they were selling a lot of SUVs big vehicles that were hugely profitable. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, Granholm, when, when she took office, uh, it, it was the auto companies that were sagging. And that just rippled throughout the economy. And, and yeah, the, the recession started earlier in Michigan, and it lasted longer in Michigan. And a lot of that just had to do with the auto industry. I mean, heck, you know, we had the bankruptcies of, of GM and Chrysler to deal with and all that. So, uh, 
Uh, a lot of that stuff happens outside uh, of the control of, of the governors. And people will say, well, yeah, but, you know, they could tinker on the margins with taxes and cutting in here. There. Well, that's the thing. It was all on the margin. And, yes, they put off uh, uh, tax increases and, and spending on things they need to. I mean, the roads became Gretchen Whitmer's uh, uh, main slogan, and, uh, you know, for good reasons, we're rated as having among the worst roads in the country. And, and there's a lot of pent-up demand for that. Schools got cut, a lot of pent-up demand for that, because uh, I think they just refused to, to face up to the fact that they're, they're going to have to get new revenue somewhere. I mean, you know, it's interesting, Bill, on Sunday, the reliably conservative Detroit News even wrote in this editorial that a, a, uh, a uh, tax hike seems inevitable. I mean, that's from the Detroit News, so that they buried it way down in there, <laughs> as if grudgingly <laughs> after having to admit that. Uh, you know, they're going to have to do something for that. I, you know, Look, we heard for years and years, you know, Michigan was was a state that lived on the bus cycle, especially of the auto industry. And in all three of the cases that you cited there, that was, that was largely the case. When Blanchard took office, when Angler took office, when Granholm took office. You could chart all of that with how the, how the auto industry was doing. Right. And it closely oh. aligned. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, uh, we're going to have to take a short break here, but we'll be right back with Chris Kristoff, uh, former bureau chief for the Detroit Free Press and ace correspondent for Bloomberg News Service. So we'll be back. Hold on. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with our special guest, Chris Kristoff, former bureau chief of the Detroit Free Press in the state capitol in Lansing. And uh, at the end of his journalistic career, he says, by the way, he's retired, but I really don't believe it. Uh, He was a correspondent for Bloomberg News Service. And we have been talking about uh, the historical pattern here in Michigan over the last 30 to 40 years, uh, the economy, the roller coaster economy here in Michigan, and how dependent it has continued to be on the auto industry. And Chris Christoph, I just want to ask you, um, you know, I remember Jim Blanchard in the 80s saying this uh, uh, particularly, and Obviously, Jennifer Granholm echoed this when she was governor, and that is we've got to diversify here in Michigan. We've got to come up with other industries or other ways of firing up our economy and not be so totally dependent on the auto industry, which has you know, become much more uh, widespread and outsourced to other states in terms of where the manufacturing is actually occurring uh, do you think there has been any progress in Michigan over time uh, in diversifying Michigan's economy, or are are we really just still uh, the automobile capital of the nation, and you could argue the world, and that's our yeah. title, and that's what people think of us as, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Well, except- you know, look, newspapers were editorializing about diversifying the economy in the 50s. I mean, this, this goes back <laughs> to the 50s and 60s. 
Were we uh, even I, born I, then, Chris? I mean, uh, you yeah. probably weren't. I no, was. I, I was. I was. I was. I was a mere <laughs> toddler. Um, but I saw editorials and, and, and uh, writings and, and uh, analysis even going back then. Look, I think the uh, we have probably diversified, and I haven't seen any recent economic analysis of this. But the last I had known, we we have diversified in Michigan. If by no other reason, there are fewer auto jobs than there used to be. I mean, that just numerically, we are we we don't have that kind of overwhelming presence. Uh, of jobs in, in, in the state, but it is still, you know, it is still a dominant manufacturing, uh, relatively high-paying uh, industry that, that I, I think it, it's still the straw that stirs the drink in a lot of ways in, in Michigan, although we have diversified in areas of business services, um, health care, uh, you know, a huge industry in Michigan as it is in many other states. So, yeah, there ha- definitely has been some diversification uh, if, if not by default, because because of the number of auto jobs that have been cut because of you know productivity jobs being uh, going to other states or, or overseas, uh, but I mean, this is still we are still the headquarters for the uh, you know the, the American auto industry in this state. Right. And uh, every, you know every year when you look at uh, you go to that revenue conference that they have in Lansing where they talk about the macro and the micro effects economy nationally in Michigan, everybody wants to look at how auto sales are doing. And if it looks like they're not going to do very well, everybody gets very nervous. And that's still the case now. That's still the case. Right. Well, over the years, uh, we've seen a serious attrition in the number of journalists uh, covering state government. Um, That's affected... uh, just about every publication. Some publications aren't even with us anymore that used to cover right. political news and governmental news in the state capitol. I, I just am curious what your perspective is about that. Uh, how badly is the public being served uh, by the paucity, yeah. uh, the lack of journalistic coverage of what's going on? Uh, what What are we missing? It's very disturbing to me. I, I think the there are so many fewer people, uh, hands on deck, covering things in, in Lansing. I remember when, when I was in, in the Free Press Bureau, Bill, the, the Free Press would do readership surveys. It would ask its readers what they wanted to, to This is like particularly in the late 90s. But, and and uh, unfailingly, they would say they want state coverage. They want to know more about state news. This, this was a constant. I mean, at one time, there were five people in the, in the uh, Free Press Bureau, at one time, the Detroit News had something like 15 people in that bureau. I mean, I, that was too many. They were stepping over each other. But, I mean, the, 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 you know, the, numerically, you just have more people to, to cover more things, uh, to do more in-depth articles, uh, and, and, and you don't see as much of that anymore. I, I think the, the reporters for the news at Free Press, the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press, for example, uh, you know, I think they do a fine job with what they have, but they're very limited just just because you can't you can only handle so much when you got one guy in a bureau or two people or one and a half people in a bureau. Um, I mean, I give you one example. Um, you know, during the Flint water crisis coverage you know, a couple of years ago, we had another huge scandal going on in, in state government, and that was the unemployment insurance fraud case, where where thousands of people were wrongly. Uh, 
accused and, uh, of uh, committing fraud against the state on unemployment. Um, many of them you know, were ordered to pay back thousands of dollars. Uh, people went into receivers. So there were some people who committed suicide because of, of the pressures of this, and, and it was all wrongly done by uh, you know, the supposedly computer glitch. And I think that issue got short shrift. And part of it was because the Flint story was taking all the oxygen out of, you know, non-Lansing stories, if you will. But uh, I, I think had there been a larger presence of media in Lansing, I think that story would have been on the front page day after day much more than it was. I mean, that's just one example. That's sort of a regulatory uh, uh, issue. And I, I think those kinds of things uh, get missed. You don't have the kind of political coverage just of the raw politics that you used to have. Um, so it, it's disturbing to me to see what's happening. And I, my fear is when people that are covering state government now for the major media decide they want to move on, I mean individuals, you know, that they don't want to do this anymore, what's going to happen? Do those newspapers have uh, people in the pipeline? You know, is there a farm team to bring up to Lansing? I think the answer is no. I mean, I can foresee a time where the Detroit News and Free Press actually don't even have a bureau here anymore. And, and, and that will be a sad, sad day. Yeah, well, one of the things that's already happened is TV coverage of right. the state capitol. I mean, that's, like, totally gone. I mean, they used to have people up here permanently, didn't oh, they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, you know, we're going back some years, too. That, that goes back quite a long time. But, uh, you know, they would send up people... Uh, for big crisis-driven stories to cover it, people who really didn't know the players and, and you know, parachute in. And I mean, I'm afraid that's what the two major dailies may end up doing someday. You know, if we if they're still even around, if we even have two newspapers out of Detroit, uh, you know, what used to be the Booth newspapers is a, is a shadow of itself in coverage of uh, of uh, state government. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a big deal, and it's happening in states all over the country. Uh, and, and, and it's not a small thing, uh, you know, that, that, you know, shining that light day after day and week after week on, on the way your state government operates is, is an important thing. And I think we're not getting enough of that. Right. Listen, uh, those are very uh, insightful comments. Really appreciate it. Chris Kristoff, former bureau chief of the Detroit Free Press. Thanks for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we've got another special guest, Saul Anuzis, former Michigan Republican Party chairman, former Michigan Republican National Committeeman. And uh, as I understand it, uh, the new president of 60-plus. Is that correct, Saul Anuzis? Uh, that's correct. Okay, Will you tell us what is 60-plus exactly, what does it do, and what are your responsibilities going to be? And does that mean you're going to leave us, Saul? You're going to move out of Michigan and go to Washington? I am. I'm going to the swamp, or at least right next door. I'll be in in, uh, uh, Old Town, Alexandria. But uh, 60-plus was started about um, 26 years ago by an ex-Marine named Jim Martin uh, to basically be kind of the conservative alternative to AARP. 
and provide market and Republican conservative type solutions uh, on the Hill with regards to uh, senior citizens issues. So dealing with anything from protecting and defending Social Security and Medicare and making it more of a market approach and more of a conservative Republican approach uh, rather than just, uh, you know, kind of the typical dump more money into a process and let it you know be the way it is. So uh, it's been um, it's also known as the American Association of Senior Citizens. Um, it has uh, been active for the last 26 years, as I said, all over the country. And uh, I'm going to take over as president here in March. Uh, we have a board meeting coming up in a couple of weeks where I will formally be uh, voted in as the new incoming president. And then uh, two years from now, I'll take over as chairman and president as Jim Martin retires at the ripe age of 85 years old. So I hope to follow in his footsteps. Well, <laughs> now, so I'm 80-something. <laughs> well, now, Saul, I, I cannot believe you yourself could be 60, right? Is that possible? Well, uh, I actually turned 60 on March 6th. <laughs> So uh, this is uh, quite an appropriate time to be doing this. So I will formally be 60-plus when I'm uh, officially sworn in. Wow. Well, look, AARP, which is the, you know, traditional, everybody knows that Senior Citizen Benefit uh, National Organization, they constantly are uh, hammering uh, potential members about all the benefits you get from being a member of AARP. Are there really that many benefits that come from being a member of AARP? And do you have benefits, let's say, in 60-plus that can come close to competing with AARP? Yeah, we, we, we don't normally we – we are just starting to do that, uh, to be honest with you. We were really more of a policy uh, group, and AARP really kind of – they make most of their money selling insurance and, and different discounts and all that kind of stuff. Now, we're going to start doing that just because I think there's a market for it. And people want to, you know, they'd rather give to a more conservative group than a more liberal group. Um, so for those who care about the policy and the politics, I'm hoping that within a year or two we'll be able to match, you know, most of the, the products and services they offer. But, you know, there are, there are significant savings. There are other senior groups out there that offer discounts for seniors, whether it's, you know, on hotels and travel, uh, supplemental health insurance and uh, fill in the donut hole at Social Security, Medicare, such stuff. So there's, there's – uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, and, and we'll probably tap into that over the next year or two years, and we're starting to do a little bit of that. But uh, uh, ARP is still the big gorilla in town. I mean, they're, you know, they, they go out there and, and are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're also subsidized by the government because they've become part of the, you know, part of the swamp as far as I'm concerned. So we're, we're going to you know, we're gonna try to grow it and be out there and offer a more conservative perspective on things. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, and I'm going to ask you about CPAC. Conservative Political Action Committee National Conference, as I understand it, that was its title, uh, last weekend um, in Washington, D.C. I think you were there, and uh, President Trump uh, appeared and delivered a stem winder of up to two hours. Uh, Some people compared it to Fidel Castro's uh, Jeremiah's in Cuba (laughs) over the years, not in terms of its substance, but its duration. Yeah, I, I'm assuming that was meant to be a compliment, but yeah, it was it was uh, phenomenal. I mean, look, you know, I was there all week. I had a chance to go to a lot of different meetings with different conservative groups that they had throughout the week, and, you know, uh, literally thousands of, of activists from all over the country came in, so it was a great time to be there. But I, I've been going to CPAC since 1979, I believe, was my first one. So it's, uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great event, um, uh, thousands of uh, people. 
people attend, uh, several thousand students, uh, college campuses from all over the country come in, kids come in. Uh, but, yeah, uh, President Trump gave a heck of a speech. I mean, you know, I'll tell you the one thing, I, I watched him and I looked up there and I thought, you know, I don't know who the Democrats going to put up that could compete with this guy. I mean, he was, he was a natural, he was comfortable, he was uh, motivated, fired up. And literally, you know, you could you could hear a pin drop. The crowd wasn't moving. Uh, I'm I'd be surprised if more than ten people went to a bathroom break in two hours. Uh, he he really did a fantastic job, and I think that's the that's the challenge the Democrats going to have. It's the, these rallies that no no other politician has been able to turn out those kinds of numbers everywhere he goes all over the country. Did he say anything new that you heard in those two hours? I mean, or was um, it? I don't think there was anything new per se. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the press, you know, he, he, he called out the Democrats on the quote unquote BS that, uh, you know, was coming after him on the co- Russian collusion that will probably come out to show that there is no Russian collusion. Um, so he was, you know, kind of expressing some frustration there. I think everything else was uh, things that had been said. He just kind of, you know, wound it all up, talked about why he was doing what he was doing, what he believed in, uh, the successes of the, the judicial appointments called out some members of Congress that were working with him. So I think, he, you know, obviously he knew he had a friendly crowd. This was a crowd that was very, you know, motivated and happy to see him. And he took advantage of kind of summarizing his uh, presidency of where it was and where it's going. And, and uh, I think, I mean, I think, he, I think he motivated a lot of people and, and fired up, you know, the grassroots folks that have got to go back to their state and will actually have to work on these campaigns. So I think it was very, very powerful, very good. Were there any other speakers at the CPAC conference that stood out to you, uh, said anything interesting, any interesting personalities that maybe the general public isn't as aware of? Uh, oh, boy. I mean, the, the program was jam-packed. I mean, um, you know, anywhere, you know, Mark Levin to uh, um, Laura Ingram to uh, what's, what's the, the, the something and spice, the, the, the two African-American women who had their show, they were up there doing their things. I mean, there was, you know, Vice President Pence was there. Congressman Meadows did a great job. Uh, so there were quite a few people who, who came in. I think it was more, you know, talking about where the conservative movement is, what's happening with regards to moving forward. There's a lot of, lot of conversation about freedom of speech and the difficulty people are having on college campuses regardless of who they were on the center-right side trying to deliver a message, give a speech, or participate in the program, how there is a very organized uh, kind of left-wing opposition to having speakers go or show up and even participate. And, and um, I think there's a belief that some of that is backfiring because it's just, you know, it's, it's not working the way they would hope. It's drawing more attention to the fact that they're being pretty radicalized and, and not, you know, not very tolerant with regards to having some kind of civil discourse with regards to politics. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure anything else really stuck out in that regard other than it was just, you know, uh, got everybody fired up, made you feel good, and, and uh, uh, some really good conversations. And I met a lot of people that I hadn't seen for a while, so it was kind of, that's always one of the nice things. Sometimes you only see these people once a year, and other times you catch up with folks you haven't seen in, in many years. And I was actually approached by a couple of young people who were there from uh, Michigan who came in who recognized me, and so that was kind of neat to see you know, the new crop of college students coming into CPAC and participating. How many people do you think from Michigan were there? Well, I know there was at least two busloads of college students. So, you know, if you assume 36 to 42, depending on the bus, 
Um, and there's probably at least another 100 or 200. So I wouldn't be surprised if there were, you know, 300 to 400, maybe even as many as 500 people from Michigan that, that, that show up. Um, you know, a couple, uh, you know, a couple of media folks were there. So it's, um, uh, it was, it was pretty good. It's going to be a lot easier for you if you're president of 60 plus and you're down in old town, Alexandria, right outside of the national capital to keep in touch with these people, right? That is, that's part of the game. You know, you got to be there to make it happen. So it'll be kind of exciting. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with Saul Anuzas former Michigan Republican Party chairman, now president of 60 plus. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back with Saul Anuzis, uh, former Michigan Republican Party chairman, former Republican National Committeeman, now president of 60 Plus. Uh, he says he's going to leave us, forsake us here in Michigan and go down uh, to the edge of the swamp. I think he's just going to dip his toe in, not get totally sucked in. I, I, I'm sure he, he'll be able to pull that off. Uh, let me ask you, Saul Anuzis, um, Laura Cox was just elected the new Michigan Republican Party chairman. She's got a big task uh, next year, and that is reelecting uh, President Trump and getting President Trump to carry Michigan, which he did in 2016, much to many people's surprise. And I just want to ask you, what are the chances you think that Donald Trump is going to be able to carry Michigan again next year? Well, I think it's going to be a tough race. Um, I think Laura Cox is the right person at the right time for the job. Um, Having a woman at the helm of the party at the time when we need to kind of broaden the party and reach out and have somebody like her that comes from the Metro Detroit area, I think is going to be very helpful. So I think that is, is a positive step. I mean, look, Michigan, I still believe Michigan is a purple state that can go red under the right circumstances. And, you know, Donald Trump came in and, and, and got a whopping 13,000 vote margin of victory here. But it was non-traditional Republicans that brought him across the board. If you took a, take a look at the map of where he won and the areas he did well in, they weren't traditionally even the Reagan Democrat areas. You know, it was downriver, upper peninsula, et cetera, which hopefully may be an indication of the changing uh both maybe the demographics, but both, you know, a broadening of, of who we're reaching out to, because I think that Trump is reaching well beyond the traditional Republican. He's going after kind of the uh, disenchanted Tea Party, uh, unaffiliated voters, many people who are not partisan at all. And that's one of our challenges. I think as a Republican Party, the challenge is going to be, you know, how do we bring these people in who truly did come out and vote for Trump because they wanted something different and weren't necessarily Republicans? But I do think that uh, the president is doing a good job of saying, look, if I'm going to get my agenda through, if I'm going to accomplish the things I need to accomplish, I need allies who are willing to vote with me. And there's not a Democrat so far who's been willing to stand up and vote for the things that most of us believe in. They've just gotten so sucked into this resistance movement that, you know, if, if you know Donald Trump wanted us to vote for clean air, they'd probably vote against it just because it's, you know, Donald Trump's idea. 
Yeah, on the other hand, uh, there obviously are elements of the population who've gone the other way uh, when it comes to voting for Republicans and voting for Donald Trump. Uh, like in the suburban um, Detroit area, you look at cities like Birmingham, uh, thought of as a traditionally Republican city. It's now really a Democratic city. You're getting state representatives and state senators elected in eastern Oakland County and, uh, for that matter, uh, suburban northwestern Wayne County. Uh, Democrats are being elected that never have been elected before. And uh, are those people going to be able to be recaptured by the Republicans at some point or by Donald Trump going forward? Or are they lost? Well, I'm not sure about recapturing them because I think they're different people, to be honest with you. I think the, uh, the demo- demographic changes of who's moving out to the, uh, those areas is different than they were 10 or 15 years ago. So you do have a different constituency, and that's why maybe the map looks different than it's traditionally looked. Uh, the real challenge for Michigan is to articulate a message that people are comfortable with Republicans delivering on. Um, I think the fact that we lost these statewide seats with the governor, secretary of state, and attorney general are very, really devastating to us from a messaging standpoint because we no longer have our people at the top of the, uh, the helm, so to speak, and, and having the bully pulpit to get the news out there. But if, if the Democrats continue to move to the left and the progressive left is the dominant Democratic Party, um, it's safe to say that this is no longer your father's Democratic Party. I mean, you know, my, my dad grew up as a UAW guy. You know, we lived in the city of Detroit. He worked at the Fleetwood plant in Fisherbody down on Fort Street. And, you know, those were JFK Democrats. They were pro-life, anti-tax, anti-communist. Um, they were kind of your Reagan Democrats. And today, you know, you take a look at this socialist policies that they're pushing, uh, the left-wing agenda that is really very radicalized by any measure. Um, I don't think that's where the average American is. I think that that's where the average activist is today on the Democratic side. I'm not sure that's really good for the, for the Democratic Party long term. So Republicans make it a little bit of a reprieve and a little bit of time uh, to kind of normalize the new Trump voters and bring them in on the, into the fold. And to me, this is kind of like, you know, the growing pains we had. And if you look back, for instance, in, in 88, when we had the Jack Kemp, Pat Robertson, Christian Wright uh, uh, evolution, where a lot of new people came into the party. There was a lot of inner fighting, and uh, after two or four, two or three or four cycles, they, you know, integrated in the party and became part of it. Uh, the Tea Party came in, you know, now almost ten years ago. Same thing is happening. They're integrating in the party and have come in. Now you got this new block of voters out of the Trump voters. So we usually need a little bit of time to pull that together, and it's oftentimes new voters. Well, on the Democrat side, it's like. Their coalition is very different, and it's a question of which members of their coalition are dominating. Today, it's the far left. And I just don't think that's part of mainstream Michigan or mainstream America. You tell us about the national popular vote. You're a big supporter of that. And I'll just remind people that if the national popular vote works the way Solanusis would like it to work, and it had been in effect in 2016, I guess Michigan would have cast its vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, even though she got less votes than Donald Trump. Will you tell us how that works? Sure. So it's not exactly true, because what we would have done is run different campaigns. Um, You know, we only, Donald Trump uh, came out and said that he would have preferred a popular vote, but he only campaigned in 13 states. If you go back to 1980, or I'm sorry, 2008, 
And basically, presidential campaigns have spent 95 to 97 percent of all their resources post the nominating convention in somewhere between six to eight states. And so what happens is four out of five Americans live in a decidedly Republican or decidedly Democratic state. So what happens is that candidates on both sides of, of the aisle do not campaign in those states because we know today that New York is going to vote Democrat, Texas is going to vote Republican, and you know, within about three or four minutes, you and I can go through and identify with about 99.9% accuracy where 40 states are going to end up in the next presidential election. And then out of those 10, three or four will become you know, swing battleground states where both parties will spend all their time. So what's happened over time, over history, is that we moved from, I think the last time anybody campaigned in all 50 states was Richard Nixon. And before then, they used to have 40, 45 competitive states, and we truly had a national campaign. Today, we've come down to where we're literally just campaigning in the last three to six battleground states, and for all practical purposes, electing the president of the battleground states of America versus the president of the United States of America. So what we're trying to do is make sure that every voter in every state is politically relevant in every election. And I got involved in this in 2008 when Michigan was a battleground state with McCain going in, and then on October 19th, we had literally transferred virtually all of our money uh, out to the national party to do the get-out-the-vote effort, and I get the phone call saying, hey, we just came out of the field with a poll. McCain is 12 points down. Thank you for the money. We're shipping the money and McCain down to Ohio and Florida and leaving Michigan. And so one day we were relevant, very important, and on the, on the cusp of, of all the political action, and the next day we were completely irrelevant. And as if you remember, in 2008, we lost a Supreme Court justice, two Republican congressmen, nine state legislators, as a Republican turnout dropped from you know, losing with 47, 49 percent, we dropped all the way down to 42 percent as, you know, the party and, and people were demoralized. And so I think that if you have a, a system that allows every voter in every state to be politically relevant, all of a sudden you're going to see a very different campaign. You're going to be running nationally in all 50 states. You're going to have to campaign across the country. And I think it would be good for America. And I personally feel we're a center-right nation. I think more people share our views than theirs. And I think if we have the right candidate with the right message, we'd win. And so I agree with President Trump and Newt Gingrich and others who think that in running for president of the United States, we ought to run a race in all 50 states across the entire country and use the national popular vote as a determinant to how the electors are chosen. Now, the one key thing here is we are not eliminating the Electoral College. And the reason that's important is the Electoral College is what brings back uh, the elections to the state. So the Secretary of State will continue to run the elections. The county clerks, precinct level, townships, uh, cities will all still be engaged in the presidential election. There is another proposal that is a constitutional amendment for a national popular vote, which would create a direct national popular vote, nationalize the elections, and I'm 100% opposed to that. This is the Federalist approach that is using Article 2, Section 1, letting every state legislature decide whether or not they jump into and take advantage of the popular vote making their state relevant in presidential elections. Very quickly, we're just about out of time, but uh, you say there are these two different approaches. These states that have said they would join a compact to uh, enable a national popular vote, are, are you competing? No, no, we're, we're, we're supplemental. We're with them. That's, that's where we're at. That's the one I support. Okay. All right. That was Saul Anuzis, the former Michigan Republican Party chairman, new president of the national organization 60 Plus. Thank you so much, Saul Anuzis, for being our guest on The Political Insider.